welcome back to another f- episode of the Field Guide Podcast. As always, I am your host, Nathan Druitz. I am your local extension educator for Stearns, Benton, and Morrison Counties. And with me, as always, is the man putting monocultures on notice, uh, your local educator for Houston and Fillmore Counties, Mike Cruz. How are you doing today, Mike? Fantastic, Nathan. How are you doing? Well, not too bad. It's a little cold and dreary for my taste, but, you know, that is what it is. Yeah, the sun is shining out uh, down here in southern Minnesota, um, but yeah, when it's still 45 degrees, it's not quite as nice as you'd like it to be. Yeah, here we could use a little bit of rain, at least at the time we're recording this, so we could use a little bit of rain, and well, I don't think we're going to get it. I think it's just going to kind of steer away from us at this point, and it's, uh, look, things are things could use a little bit of a drink of water at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're coming back to you today, uh, kind of doing a little follow-up episode on our chat with Joe Bogarding. Um, for those of you uh, who need a little refresher, Joe is an organic producer uh, up in Nathan's uh, neck of the woods. Um, and we talked about everything from his conservation practices to a range of weed management uh, options that he uses. Uh, he talked about a lot of the challenging soils that he that he has dealt with over time and how he continues to learn and continues to be flexible in his approach. Um, one of the things though that that had come up during our conversations with joe um was the use of the word organic and actually the fact that joe didn't really want to say the word organic as much in our conversations and and that's going to be kind of where we start today so so nathan i guess i'd turn it back to you why why do you think joe didn't really want to say the word organic when when we were having our conversations well i think he's straight up you know, said straight out of the gate there, kind of the reason why he didn't want to use the word organic, you know, and it's, it's really comes down to it's, it's not about being organic or not organic. It's about doing the right management practices and, and being agronomically sound in those management practices. And so, you know, the best, the best practices, you know, or right now there's a lot of things we can learn from being organic and in, in his, his process there, his thought process there is really along the lines of, okay, how do I integrate this? And and how do I maybe get away from some of those practices that are actually, in fact, quite harmful, you know, that, that we probably shouldn't be doing. And so I think that's the the real reason why, you know, his, his focus on biological farming or, you know, really in promoting the biological, biological components of his fields, as well as working within the environment, not necessarily against it. I think those are all really his primary focus, less so organic. And so, you know, I really, I guess from that perspective, you know, I would think that there would be some potential, you know, even there for some conventional practices, if those, you know, conventional put quotation marks around that word um, for that integration as you go along. And in fact, I think some of his practices could technically be classified as, again, quotations around the word conventional. Right, right. And, you know, one of the things that that I've really kind of push in in the conversations that I have with people is that, you know, it's it's not one thing or the other. There's a lot of attributes and a lot of practices in both conventional, organic, and you know, grass-fed. You name the operation that can apply very well to a lot of other operations. And so, Nathan, I was just going to ask you. You know, he had a number of different approaches to improving soil health 
in, in his operations. And he, you know, he talked about the, the fact that his soils were very wet and he, he struggled for a number of years to get good crops off of them, whether or not they were in pasture. And then he took them out of pasture, put them back into pasture. So was, I thought we'd just kind of run down a little short list here of some of the practices he used, uh, he uses currently and trying to just have a conversation about, you know, how those have improved his soils and how they might apply outside of an organic system. And, um, the first one I'd touch on is, uh, is crop rotation. So, you know, maybe you can speak a little bit to how he uses crop rotations and then maybe how they are also beneficial, um, outside, even outside of organic systems. Well, I think, you know, in general that outside of organic, I guess both of those questions are one and the same in this area, right? We're, we're dealing with dairy country up here. And so our crop rotations oftentimes include alfalfa in that rotation. And so I think, you know, when, when you look at that organic versus you know, conventional, in terms of crop rotations, this isn't, this isn't an organic versus conventional situation. This is just simply understanding that, you know, when you rotate your crops, you're going to be putting many of you, these pests that are going to influence, you know, in fact, say corn and only corn, you're going to be putting them at a disadvantage and, you know, the same thing with diseases. So that is, that is completely independent of whether you're organic or doing organic practices or whether you're, you're following along the conventional lines. And honestly, that's, you know, that's the big thing there. You know, when you listen to, again, getting back to that, that first that first term there how do we define these good practices are good practices bad practices are bad practices no matter no matter how you look at it so let's let's focus on those good practices this is one of them yeah yeah so crop rotations um definitely very useful in interrupting a pest life cycle um we do have some pests that will go over multiple crops or they might be able to hang in the soil for an extra year um but the fact that we separate allow you know we don't do back to back of the same crop in many instances especially in joe's operation um really interrupts those pest cycles and gives us as a producer a, a leg up in their management well and i think uh, you're probably better better and more capable of answering this question, you know, given your background. So, you know, I, of course my mind always goes to pests, you know, I'm thinking insect disease, weeds, that's just simply what I like the most about uh, dealing with agronomy. So uh, from your perspective, you know, when we're looking at some of that nutrient cycling, soil fertility and in the biological processes, what are the benefits versus, you know, uh, pitfalls versus some of these in some of these scenarios especially when you're dealing with crop rotations what are what what from the other angle that i missed do we need to discuss here as well sure sure so you know let's talk about some very basic things that you see in a crop rotation especially when you're rotating with annual crops and perennials and you're dealing with crops that have different types of rooting systems fibrous versus tap roots right all of a sudden we are reaching into the soil let's talk about the the types of roots we're reaching into the soil a different way tap roots might go deeper fibrous roots go out and they actually create kind of a web um and so you're you're breaking down the soil but also building the soil um in different ways which is a good thing which is a is a healthy thing it, uh, we can actually access nutrients in different ways um but then also when we're talking about you know annual versus perennial systems or do we have a living crop there 
all year round in those perennial parts. Again, you're building soil in a different way. Are we talking about crops that are actually fixing nitrogen? Okay, that's a source of nitrogen into the soil. Are we talking about crops that actually break down differently? What's the difference between a corn stalk and a soybean stalk, right? Corn stalks are typically, you're gonna take longer to break down. Soybean stalks will, you know, debris will actually break down pretty quickly. And when we don't have just a single type of material out there, all of a sudden the diversity gives us a lot more resilience when there isn't a lot of rain or we maybe don't have the best source of nitrogen or maybe we don't have the best source of manure that year. You know, all this variability really helps in the resiliency of our cropping systems. Something you just said there, I think is quite quite interesting because typically when we think of variability, that's like a red flag. We don't like variability, but it sounds like in this scenario, in fact, we want that variability. And could you talk a little bit about that, how that might factor into some of the risk reward scenarios that we're thinking of? Sure, sure. So there's there's two ways that I think about variability. You can talk about variability, say like across the field. And that's oftentimes what we're trying to manage, right? We're, we don't want our low spots to behave like low spots. We wanna bring them up or, you know, so there's that type of variability. The variability that I'm referring to right now is the variability across time, right? From year to year, are we breaking down pest cycles? Are we providing different types of carbon into a soil? So different microbes are active. Um, and, and that type of variability, especially when we're talking about different types of carbon and we're actually trying to get the microbes going, all of a sudden starts building soil structure. And the, the payoff there is the better soil structure we have, one example, better water holding capacity and better water availability to our crops. Drought situations, we, we just respond better across time. Um, so that is one way that variability across time can be very beneficial to a production system. I just kind of find it funny, you know, I'm having flashbacks to our podcast with Jody and mm. You just said soil structure there, you know, and, and how that changes. I really, you know, that was something that really struck me there with her, you know, and how we were talking about that and, and eliminating compaction. And clearly this is something that, you know, it, even though we're talking about it within the, the soil health crop rotation frame, frame of mind here, this is something where that clearly goes way beyond even just that, you know, even just beyond the crop rotation into things like soil compaction. You mentioned soil fertility, pest management really a lot there to I, th I think we could spend a lot of time yeah. there on trying to unpack <laughs> all of that information and i feel like you know if we got a yeah you know, I, I feel like we got a lot of people at the university who we, we could sit down and just have like a 24-hour constant conversation about this and you know never never have to do another podcast again <laughs> <laughs> so so with that being said let's let's go on to another attribute of of joe's system um that i think applies very well across multiple types of systems um and that's cover crops so nathan can you kind of remind us of joe's approach to cover crops and then maybe touch on why those are so beneficial to cropping systems well and again we're we're dealing with that uh Adding in, you know, you mentioned it, having that uh, that living crop, having that you know living cover from 
you know, the first part of the year to the end, last part of the year, you know, and, and making sure that we have that covered. And that's really his philosophy. You, you heard him say it uh, in, in different ways and, and at different points where he was covered, you know, where he was talking, talking about some of the cover crop systems that he was running and, you know, and how he got into that, making sure that he had covers at the end of the year and, you know, and, and coming in after corn and things like that. And of course now he's working on trying to essentially have a living system that, you know, he could plant into. And so now we're he's looking at some of the different things, you know, where he's trying to do some strip tillage in these, in these rows and plant into that, leaving his cover crop there, you know, and, and really working on a lot of that. And of course he brought up a guy that, um, when I was in grad school, I heard a lot about John or, uh, Albrecht and, um, you know, the systems that he was working on with cure clover. And I think that's a, a great, uh, starting place to really see the, the possibilities but also to see the, um, the the potential pitfalls of this. I think that's really important that we see both of those. You know, that that's something that up to times I think we miss is that when, you know, it, I guess from an extension standpoint, we're not here as salesmen. We're here to to provide a, a unobscured viewpoint of where we're going. And I think that there's some good, some pros and some cons to these types of systems. And that's not that we should stop trying to innovate on that front, but rather that, you know, we know where those that are at and where we need to move forward. And so I think Joe is really working forward, you know, really lo- looking at those problems and, you know, taking that on head on. And I think that's a great, great setup there. Or a great, great thing to look for. As for, you know, really what we're seeing, the benefits there, you know, and I've, I was just out earlier this week doing some uh, predator sampling for, Another project, uh, you know, with uh, Anna Cates and, and Claire Lacan, uh, two of our extension colleagues there. And what we're looking for is cover crop versus non-cover crop. We're looking for insect uh, predators feasting on pests, right? That's what we're really looking for is that. And, uh, you know, we've got some great, great pictures. I showed, uh, I've got a video of a harvestman or a daddy long legs is what we, you know, the, the common name for that. Uh, eating on one of my waxworms. It is one of the most disgustingly beautiful things you will ever see in your life. <laughs> it is is truly incredible to see. And so, you know, this is this is one of the benefits that we get from from a cover crop, clearly, where we're seeing that increased in, increased predation on the you know, these types of insects and you know on, on our pest, you know, what would be our pest populations in that scenario that's a good thing. You know, that, that's a benefit that we're getting, you know, and then of course we have to go back to what you're talking about with crop rotation. It's an additive effect, right? We're talking about better soil structure, um, more diversity in terms of organic car, you know, carbon in the soil, carbon, which we need to grow our, you know, our crops, you know, better soils, more, you know, more uh, biologically alive soils, which helps us with our cycling of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, you know, you start getting into a lot of this where we're starting to see a lot of those, you know, those shifts. Um, we're, there's a lot of good things there with, uh, with cover crops. And, and I think, uh, you know, Joe, Joe really cl- covered a lot of those in, in depth of, of things that he's physically seen, you know, and again, we don't, we don't like to use anecdotal data, but you know, this is something that I, it's not just one grower saying it at this point. It's, it, you know, mo- most of the ones who, who do try cover crops, they come out looking, you know, they come out pretty happy with the results. Yeah. And, and I love that you brought up the fact that cover crops aren't like a silver bullet. It's not a slam dunk. 
you know, right out of the gate, you're probably not going to be overly successful with it. Right. And Joe touched on that a number of times too. It's like, yeah, we've struggled. We've had some falls that were just too wet and we have really struggled to get things in. And I've seen a, a number of those types of situations down in this region too. Right. And so, um, I, I would really want to stress, especially from, you know, extension standpoint and education standpoint that this is a learning process. Um, and what somebody does even in the same County that you're in might not work really well in your system. Um, but that doesn't mean that cover crops are bad. It doesn't mean that it won't ever work for you. It's that you might have to try something and then try something different and keep trying something until you find something that really works for you. Well, I, I think this comes back to a couple of different conversations. We had one with your dad and again, the one we had with Joe here. And the first one there is, is everyone, you know, and if you have no tillers, everyone remembers their first year, no tilling. Yeah. And that is universal. I grew up in Missouri. I remember the guys who talked about that, that first year of no tilling and it never turns out pretty. Right. And so, you know, it takes a while uh, to build this up. And then from a failure standpoint, I was just out at a field uh, on Monday that, you know, the guy planted a wonderful mix of, of he had radishes in there. He had clovers and peas and winter wheat. He planted it in the fall and he seeded it down when it said froze. So basically a frost seeding. He came back this spring and I was out there and it is the saddest looking cover crop you've ever seen because the winter wheat was the only thing that sort of survived. And I say the word sort of because it didn't do a great job surviving itself. So keep in mind that even guys who have been doing this uh, for years, they're they're messing up as well. They're they're still struggling with some of this. This is not something that you're just going to throw it out there and it's just going to, you know, you're going to immediately change the world with it. This is something where it's going to take you a while to build up that the management practices. It's going to take you a while to figure out how do you get that in the ground? What time does it need to get in the ground? And what does that mix need to look like? You know, the, the same thing, the same mix that works for the guy right down the street from you may not work for you. It may not fit within your management scheme. You know, we've got a lot of, a lot of very, we have a lot of, knowledge you know part of the reason why we started this project we have a lot of knowledge out there in terms of growers who have been there and they have done that and every one of them is going to tell you a completely different story they're going to they're going to lead you down a completely different you know uh, adventure through their life so just be prepared to to do that yourself right right and another one of the one of the things the operations that joe talked about quite a bit uh, or at least we tried to get him to talk about, and they went off on how soil health actually is more important than weed control, um, was, was how he controlled weeds on, on his operation. Um, and you know, when, when I talk about weeds, we're, we always talk about uh, resistance, right? And how we are seeing kind of resistance across the board to a conventional approach, right? And you know, organic systems really do give you this window into, okay, if I've got resistance, how do I actually apply other, you know, management systems 
to controlling those weeds. And he talked about everything from flame weeding to inner inner row cultivation, using guidance systems to using a, what was it? It was a weed whipping system that he had put together. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I stress people to listen to that conversation um, with an open mind going, you know what? Here's somebody who's trying something different. And if I'm running into, say, water hemp issues, for example, um, where I, I just am lacking in the control that I'm looking for, well, here's a really good example of somebody else trying something different that may or may not work, but it, it might be worth considering on my own operation. Well, and this goes all the way back to what we started our first, you know, first topic of conversation where we were looking at uh, good, you know, good practices are good, bad practices are bad. So getting back to that idea, integrated pest management, in this case, integrated weed managing resistance is not relying on the, you know, just relying on these herbicides to be utilizing cover crops, to be utilizing our crop itself as a means to compete with that weed itself. And then, you know, and, and also looking at, um, you know, some of these mechanical methods of removal, you know, to, to date, I have yet to hear of a weed that is actually physically resistant to cold, hard steel going through it. And so it's, it's one of those scenarios where, yes, I, you know, when, when I look at this and I look at his variety, I think this is something where we can, again, another opportunity to, get outside of our defined terms, organic, conventional, and, and learn lessons from both and, and apply those in these fields. Because at one point, you know, in a row cultivation would not have been considered organic and, you know, and, and yet here we are. So, you know, it's, it's fun to see how, where this has gone. The other aspect there too, is, you know, he's built a lot of his own equipment and I hope that we get a chance to get out and, and see some of that in action, even yet this, this spring here, because that is, uh, seeing his inner row cultivator is just one of the cooler things. And don't, don't be afraid to work with some of that. I I've got guys right now. I know there's a couple of guys who are building their own, their own interceders so they can intercede cover crops this spring. It is incredible to see a lot of this. And I'm, you know, I'm very excited to see where, where growers are going in this area, especially in, in, in those terms where, you know, they're innovating, you know, that the innovating in ways that other people aren't, you know, they're, they're doing things that just simply boggle, you know, boggle the mind because they believe in this and they've seen it work and they know where the, you know, they know how to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, one of the aspects of, especially what Joe talked about, um, but it's just, it's just true across the board. Um, so much of this is a moving target, right? Whether we're talking about conservation, we're talking about soil health, we're talking about weed control. You never really have a solution because every time you, you come up with something, there's always another question. There's always another weed. There's always another challenge. Um, take weed control for example right you talked about yeah i i don't know of a weed that can stand up or is resistant to iron coming through it but i know of weeds that will the population will shift to a germination time that is after you typically run iron through the field right oh, yeah right oh, yeah yeah and, and you see the same thing with with herbicides you see the same thing with mowing you know yeah if i go through and i mow a weed down sure it won't get as tall as it usually does but it'll get flat to the ground so the the fact is like 
this is all going to be a moving target that you constantly have to keep learning about and you constantly have to keep challenging what you know if you want to stay on top of it and if you want to keep your production systems as healthy and as productive as they can be, which, you know, Joe takes an approach to that of he is constantly learning. He is constantly looking for ways to get better, ways to address questions, knowing that there's going to be another question down the road. Um, and I would really push a lot of our producers to take a similar approach. Um, one of the ways that we can do that is, is through on-farm research. Now, Nathan, I know you have a lot of experience with doing some of these on-farm research plots, research projects. And I wondered if you just wanted to take a minute right now and just maybe touch on some of the things that you're doing, you know, maybe as good examples that people could consider. Well, yeah. And, and there's a couple of comments before we get into that, sure. you know, off of that information, you know, one of the first things there's uh, a former extension or retired extension agent. Well, you always says you have to be a student of your own management practices. I think that is very true to this date still, you know, it's, it's something where you can't forget to learn. Uh, you never, and you never know where you're going to find that, you know, where you're going to learn something new uh, from. And, oh, the other aspect of this too, you know, and you mentioned that there are weeds that, you know, they're going to adapt and we're going to constantly have to be learning new things, new control methods, you know, and, and the, the big thing there, that's the reason why I mentioned integrated weed management or integrated pest management in general. You know, this is, this isn't just a weed issue. This is an insect issue. This is a disease issue. We have disease, you know, we have fun, fungicide resistance out there. We have insecticide resistance out there and you can't, you know, proper use of those chemicals and, and utilizing your integrated pest management systems, we can delay a lot of that. We can, we can really throw a, a knuckleball at a lot of those weeds. It's not going to be a silver bullet, but you know, it, it is uh, definitely an opportunity to, you know, throw something at the, those weeds that they haven't seen before, because like, you're right, you know, I've seen Palmer amaranth, you mow it off, the stuff gets six inches tall puts off like a foot long seed head it's incredible how well that that weed has adapted to disturbance like that and and you just don't think about it but you know and and i i was out in an alfalfa field here a couple of weeks ago where you know i saw carcasses of you know what i believe to be powell powell amaranth not palmer powell amaranth which is common in the state of minnesota and you know it's just it's incredible to see that in alfalfa of all things you know so even in our perennial systems, it, there's no silver bullet. But getting back to on-farm go trials and, and that sort of thing, absolutely. You know, the, the big thing there is as we continue to learn, if you're, if you're anything like me, I can stay, I could sit in a lecture. I could stand, you know, it could be stand, I could stand and deliver a lecture. Uh, I could be in, you know, a scenario where someone is lecturing to me. The best way I learn is by seeing it. And by gaining gaining that interaction in field, on farm, and actually getting my hands on it. And that's really what I'm trying to do here as we move forward with this program and these projects. So this last year, we started uh, what I'm hoping to be a, a new 
basically series of uh, field days that will be occurring here throughout central Minnesota. So not just my area, Stearns, Benton and Morrison counties, but also in Wright County and even, you know, further north. So we're, I'm working with uh, Adam Austin, my colleague or our colleague, local educator out of Wright County on putting in some cover crop plots as well as you yourself. You know, we're looking at down there and Troy Salzer up in St. Louis County. So, you know, this is this is a project that, you know, it, it started off small and it has expanded from there. And really, you know, what we're looking at here is trying to figure out what are the best species of of crops, annual crops. Typically, we're thinking of these as forage crops. Can we plant if we run into a scenario like 2019, which, you know, that was a very painful year for people to remember how do we, or what, what crops do we want to plant in those types of scenarios where we're getting it to the, you know, late or beginning parts of July, where corn and soybeans for grain production really isn't an option. What can we do that is going to provide us with a decent quality of forage as well as biomass yield? And coming from Missouri again, I've seen a lot of these crops grown in the state of Missouri. I've seen them grown in the state of Wisconsin, but we are farther north, right? That changes how things look. And so that's part of what we're doing there is we're just trying to under, better understand what are we dealing with and, and what does that look like and what can we do? What, what recommendations should we be making, especially in this area of dairy country where we need that high quality forage because, you know, just having a, a bunch of straw sitting around isn't going to get us what we need. And then, of course, we're working a new project this year is I'm working with our weed scientist on campus, Deblin, and we are putting in a weed management demonstration uh, research herbicide efficacy trial, more or less. Essentially, my goal is to show, talk about and show the different uh different management tactics and different timings plus residuals that we have between our pre and our post-emergent herbicides as they go along and you know what what works best for especially water hemp in this area because water hemp has been easily one of the biggest problems we've we've faced here in this area i've seen it i've seen way too many fields off the off the highways and and other places you know small highways big highways interstate system where we've got water hemp at the ears. And, you know, this is an opportunity to, again, continue to learn on how do we manage a weed that is not new to the area, but relatively recent to the area. And how do we better management so that way it stops sucking yield and we can, we can start fighting back and also hopefully prevent resistance in the long run as well. So the, the reality is, and you know, it's harsh as it is what it is. The university does not have research plots in every county in the state. We can't. We can't afford to run that. We've got them in very strategic spots to come up with great data, but those can just be guidance for a region, right? If you want to know what's going on on your farm and you have a question that is specific to your production system, these types of on-farm trials are a great way to address those questions. And it can be everything from, you know, this cover crop uh, piece that Nathan and I are working on with other colleagues, uh, weed management as Nathan has managed, but uh, you know, it also goes into things as, you know, 
I don't want to say mundane, but as like nitrogen response trials, right? If you're curious and actually how much of a response you're getting to a nitrogen application, do an on-farm trial. That, you know, that is oftentimes the easiest way to come up with answers for your own production systems. Oh, absolutely. You know, and again, that's part of the reason why we're doing these here, because again, you know, we, we get great research out of our, our ROCs, but as so many growers love to point out, sometimes that data isn't 100% accurate to every region. And we have to be mindful of that. And so, yeah, I, I would definitely encourage, you know, I know a lot of, of co-ops around here, you know, they're agronomists, they're out there, they're doing strip trials and things like that. I'm more than happy to sit down with anyone and, and set some of this stuff up and, and help, you know, get replicated trials for different things out there. Uh, typically, my focus tends to be more on agronomics and things along those lines. So, you know, that's that's typically my focus, not less so on the products in the case of, you know, like the herbicide trials that mm -hmm. we're running. I'm not so much curious about the actual products themselves as the different active ingredients and how they have their influence on the waterhead populations in our corn and soybeans. And then how do we match those up together to get the best result? And that's really what we get a chance to see out of out of on-farm trials, really, when we're doing those on-farm, is that we really get that opportunity. We, we do get that opportunity to see those up front. We get a chance to experiment with that and figure out what is going to work best on our farm. And, you know, in our case here, what is my, maybe would work best in the area. You know, we, we try very hard to, to centralize these these trials and, and, and go that route. But what what does that look like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And we've got a number of educators, um, both local, regional and state level educators that have worked really hard at coming up with really good protocols for this. Um, and obviously, a number of us are well versed at at analyzing this type of data and helping you understand um, the type of results, because sometimes it can be kind of confusing. But yeah, the on farm stuff is is not only a good way to help yourself, but when we start doing these as demonstration plots, that's when we start reaching out to our neighbors and start making a real difference at the at the local level. Absolutely, you know, and and again, for a lot of this, if there are questions or you know people want to see some of this stuff in you know on their farm, your local education, your your local educators all have the knowledge or they have access to the knowledge to make a lot of this happen, you know, and, and we're more than happy to help. I, I know for a fact that the vast majority of us would be rather standing down in a field, uh, you know, in a producer's field than sitting in our offices, twiddling our thumbs. So more than happy to get out and help as best as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, I, there's, like you said before, there's a ton of things that we could talk about that came up in that conversation with Joe, but uh, I think we're kind of running up on the uh, the end of our time here today. So, uh, Nathan, anything else you want to touch on before we say goodbye to everybody? Not really. I, you know, I think again, you know, think when when it comes to cover crops and conservation, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. There's, you know, good practices are good, bad bad practices are bad, and I think it'd be best if we just simply drop the labels of organic and conventional and and you know, looked at those good practices and said, okay, let's say, how do we implement these practices on farm? How do we do the best job for, you know, our individual producers and how do we make that as successful as we can? Yeah, it's really important. Keep an open mind about um, whether it's practices, what's going on in your operation, and then also be flexible. 
you know, try something. If it doesn't work, try something else. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to try something that doesn't work perfectly the first time. Well, Mike, I guess that is, you know, we're out of time here for, for today. Again, for more information, you can always go to uh, www.extension.umn.edu and look at uh, our website there. If you would like to get in contact with your local educators, all you have to do is go to extension.umn.edu backslash local and every county has local educators or some way to contact your, your nearest local educator. And as always, if you have uh, individuals who you would like to hear on this podcast, who you think would be a great uh, great growers or producers to have conversations with, please feel free to contact either Mike or myself. Anything else, Mike, Dad? Nope. All right. Well, thank you again for spending time with us here today on the Field Guide Podcast. See you next time.